really obvious that in a completely profit-driven market, investments in pandemics and preparedness, that just, it doesn't pay. The neoliberal ideology is that basically the market's governed, profit is best. And I think we've seen in this instance that entire sort of theory being heavily questioned. Big Pharma has gotten really good at gaming the system. And as a consequence, we're in this moment where we do not have what we need to be able to get out of it. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer. A pointed conversation about who gets what and why with one of America's most provocative capitalists. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm Jessen Farrell, and I'm senior vice president at Civic Ventures and a former state legislator. So, Jessen, today we're going to explore one of the best examples of neoliberal overreach, uh, which is big pharma, and in particular explore the sort of past and present of big pharma in the context of the COVID crisis and the pandemic. You know, the challenge, of course, is that a lot of the things that we need today to address the COVID crisis uh, weren't things that the pharma industry felt were profitable to explore or research prior to it coming along. Botox, yes. Um, Viagra, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, vaccines, not so much. Or, or, you know, antivirals, not so much. It really exposes how outdated our patent system is and how a lack of rules and transparency have really allowed big pharma to exploit loopholes and and the frailties in the patent system, you know, the way uh, lawyers have figured out how to extend patents as long as possible. You know, it used to be a 20-year patent becomes a 40-year patent. And, you know, Big Pharma has gotten really good at gaming the system. And as a consequence, we're in this moment where we do not have what we need to be able to get out of it from a vaccine standpoint. One of the things that's super depressing is that since the early 2000s, since 2002, I think, We've had a bunch of these epidemics caused by SARS, swine flu, MERS, Zika, Ebola, et cetera, et cetera. And I think these diseases collectively have killed 600,000 people. And, you know, when these things emerge, there's a little bit of a scramble to see what we can do. And fortunately, those diseases waned. But in spite of the fact that it was super obvious to lots of people and should have been obvious to the, certainly to the pharmaceutical industry, that other epidemics or a potential pandemic would emerge, the industry failed to sustain any investment into these treatments or vaccines. And there we are. And, the, and that failure may surprise the public, but it absolutely doesn't surprise people working on these public health issues. It's really, really obvious that in a completely profit-driven market, you know, investments in pandemics and preparedness, that just, it doesn't pay. <laughs> it doesn't pay. And there's also a whole lot of barriers beyond just the profit issue. There's a almost a black box in terms of where public funding goes. We allocate a chunk yeah. of, of money every year and it goes into 
corporations, R&D arms, and we have no ability to get at the benefits of what those public dollars create. So it's not just an outdated patent system. It's not just a change in rules like stock buybacks that limit private sector investment in R&D. It's also this lack of transparency with our public dollars. So there are a lot of specific things that could be fixed. We had that fantastic conversation about a lot of these practices with Preeti Krishtel, who took us through a lot of this stuff. And today we're talking to Tahir Amin, who, uh, along with Preeti, co-founded the initiative for Medicines, Access, and Knowledge, which is a global nonprofit dedicated to changing uh, the intellectual property and political economy of pharmaceutical innovation. Uh, and uh, to hear is an attorney dedicated to reshaping patent law to better serve the public. Uh, anyway, it should be a really interesting conversation. My name's uh, Tahir Amin. I'm a co-founder and co-executive director of uh, an organization called the Initiative for Medicines, Access and Knowledge. And uh, our work revolves around looking at reforming the patent system, but also intellectual property laws and uh, also looking at the political economy of um, innovation and how that model works in the current uh, uh, economic climate. Well, you're in an interesting spot at an interesting time, aren't you? Yeah, no, this is a COVID, <laughs> COVID has certainly uh, uh, unleashed or opened up uh, every possible conversation. You have this uh, terrific piece out on the limits in the way that COVID has exposed the limits of uh, the pharmaceutical market model, which I suppose reflects the core of your perspective on this. And so why don't you help take our listeners through that argument? Yeah, I think the pharmaceutical model is broken and it's it's shown its limits in COVID-19. And we could have been much better prepared for this pandemic. I think uh, it goes to the fact that there's a disconnect between the, the actual need, the real public health needs, and the action that gets taken. The outbreaks are often unpredictable, not long enough to generate a sufficient market for uh, you know, new drug, drug discovery or a new, new treatment. And uh, what gets in the way of that also is the fact that uh, pharmaceutical companies are, uh, these days are much more focused on the profitability aspects of things and practicing uh, things such as shareholder profits and boosting those and executive pay instead of putting all that uh, those dollars back into real R&D. And that's why we've come up short. Uh, the market, the way it works, is not incentivized to uh, put the research dollars into potential pandemic situations or real public health needs. And uh, this is uh, something that we have to fix. We have largely been caught with our pants down because of the various proprietary natures of the, uh, the pharmaceutical market that exists, largely to extract as much as possible but only in places that it can. So then you talk a little bit about market forces and that framing, but what specifically was happening to limit our ability to be ready in this moment? So I think a big part of uh, this problem is is the patent system. The patent system, the way it works today, uh, encourages companies to take out uh, uh, many different types of patents on existing drugs rather than actually really developing new potential treatments such as for COVID. Instead, they are basically repatenting the same product over and over again in different ways. Uh, and they build up these, these patents on an existing franchise, uh, existing product. And that can mean hundreds of patents on the same product. 
uh, instead of actually using those that effort and time and research dollars for real public health needs, such as like now with COVID. So the way the patent system is supposed to work is, you know, you come up with an invention and you get a patent and that's great. You get 20 years of an exclusivity period. But the system we have today is is really gone well beyond that. It's where companies are looking to, if you've got a cancer drug and it's really a blockbuster, I'm going to try and hang on to that blockbuster for, for as long as possible. And that means filing as many patents and doing these little tweaks, which I claim to be uh, incremental innovations, which often they're not. They may be useful, but they're not real inventions for the purpose of a patent. And uh, that allows me to, as a company to keep prolonging my profits and prolonging my monopoly, which is not what the patent system is supposed to be about. Uh, as a result, we don't get the real research that we need because companies can keep filing patents and keep holding uh, markets and making huge profits on drugs that are actually, they're useful, but they're not useful in when we have a pandemic situation like this. When, when we look at it, the situation of what we're dealing with now with COVID, and particularly when we're looking for a vaccine, uh, there's a lot of uh, being written of how, how much effort was being worked on in terms of uh, previous coronaviruses, SARS and MERS, which emerged in 2002 and 2012, and how much work was being done on a vaccine for those particular coronaviruses. But they weren't sustained in terms of investment. And, uh, and as a result, it's, it's because there's no markets there for, for them. And so uh, companies don't want to actually put money into it. And that's understandable. But when we're looking at what we're dealing with now, it just goes to show the limits of the market uh, in terms of dealing with these uh, issues. And patents also play a role in this, because if you look at the way vaccine patents uh, have emerged in other disease areas, we usually have a few actors that hold all the technology and all the uh, knowledge. And I think what we're seeing now here is where uh, a lot of public money is going now to drive these existing technologies forward now all of a sudden in this massive emergency. And uh, why couldn't we have been investing more in, in preparedness uh, beforehand? And, and the markets or the companies are only acting now because now governments are actually backing a lot of this research. Uh, they won't put their own dollars in because they need markets. And now we're all of a sudden sort of uh, rushing in a, in a moment where we could have been actually a bit further along the line. And of course, you don't know for sure, but SARS and MERS and COVID are very, very similar. So a sustained investment in both treating coronaviruses and a vaccination for them over the last 10 years would have certainly given the world a head start on this problem. Exactly. And that's the proposition that we're making. We're not saying that, you know, we could have had a final product before it all no. happened and just rolled it out. No, that by, by scientific means, that's not possible. But uh, exactly, we could have been a lot further down the road. And, you know, you look at remdesivir, which is this this wonderful drug that everybody's kind of uh, clamoring about. And, and it's, it's actually not that good, really, uh, when you really look at the data. We're not trying, trying to be ungrateful here because obviously Gilead has put in the effort, but look at the government dollars that went into that way back when it was being tested for Ebola, which was done with the US military. Yeah. Uh, and then they switched it to SARS and MERS, uh, which various universities that Gilead collaborated with uh, got government funding to the tune of at least what we can see transparently uh, above 70, around $70 million. And they were testing SARS and MERS and seeing potential there. And then that was up until about 2018, I think the last published paper I saw on SARS and MERS. And then all of a sudden, COVID breaks out and then boom, you know, we've got this injection of sort of effort. And whatever was happening with the universities with those grants on SARS and MERS, we don't know. It's not transparent. Uh, our podcast is devoted to exposing 
the weaknesses of market fundamentalism or ne neoliberalism, right? That, that this sort of worship at the altar of markets has blinded us. It, and, and, you know, to be clear, markets have a function in society and they produce a lot of good, but markets alone cannot solve broad scale collective action problems usually. <laughs> and right. this, you know, this seems like a canonical example of that, like exactly the kind of problem that markets fail at are the kinds of problems that can bring down civilizations. I, I completely agree. Yeah. Pharma is an immensely profitable uh, industry. So profitable, in fact, <laughs> that they're spending, you know, in the range of, 50 billion a year in aggregate on stock buybacks. Right. I mean, they, I mean, they spend almost as much on stock buybacks as they do on R and D as an industry. So the money's there to do the research. It's just that the people running the companies would prefer to enrich themselves rather than solve these problems. I mean, it does really sort of come down to that. Yeah. I, th I think we, we do live in a sort of maximized capital, but not yeah. maximize it in a place where we could be actually sort of generating new products. Uh, it's it's more sort of the capital's flowing to certain areas where it's not to the benefit of the larger society. So related to stock buybacks and other policies, what's wrong with the patent system that could be changed to make it work better? The, I mean, there's so many components to this conundrum or this, this, this situation that we're in. The patent system, the intellectual property system is a key driver of a lot of this. Uh, I mean, we talk about sort of neoliberalism. If we look at the last 40 years, the rate that the intellectual property system has grown globally and, and the, the sort of levels that it's kind of allowed the types of knowledge to be proprietized has grown significantly. I mean, we really think about, we talk about the gig economy now, the precursor there was a knowledge economy and that's what the patent system and the IP systems developed. They basically locked down so much knowledge that's held by so few players. Uh, and what we're seeing now is, is like anybody who's trying to develop a vaccine and forget about the COVID-19 vaccine. This is, this has been a problem even with, I did some research for Garvey, which is an institute for vaccines on pneumococcal rotavirus and um, papillomavirus vaccines. And, and there's only a few players that hold all the proprietary knowledge. And you can imagine now you've got, supposedly there are 110 actors trying to find a vaccine globally this time. But a lot of that knowledge is, is in pieces. It's like everyone's got a little piece of the puzzle. But no one's got the full puzzle and and that just slows everything down there is a scientist who say you know basically they can't work through all these patterns so they either research just stops or they get acquired and so it all gets consolidated and, and that's what the intellectual property system has done you know it can be an incentivizer but i think it also locks down and slows progress in many ways as well you know i think what's another useful thing to understand is the relative scale of the kinds of investments necessary to make good progress on these things. You know, you write that the global funding for basic research for these sort of orphan diseases and so on and so forth is only about $4 billion, but 64% of that $4 billion comes from public tax dollars and another 20% comes from philanthropic organizations. So the private pharmaceutical sector contributes just 17% of that, $650 million. Um, 
which sounds like a lot of money until you consider that the industry is $661 billion, <laughs> right? Yeah, that's, that's just the top 20 companies' revenue for 2019. So oh, that's the top good. 20. Oh, top yeah, 20, right. Oh, my God. That's so it's top 20, yeah. Golly, it's 800 or a trillion or whatever it is. Oh, yeah, we're, we're probably in the trillions. Yeah. So um, what is $650 million on a trillion? Is that... No, that's one-tenth of a percent. It's a tenth of a percent. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's in the tenths of a percent or less on the global pharmaceutical sales. And so, you know, like if there was a 1% global tax on the pharmaceutical industry devoted to research on these sorts of things, you could spend not $650 million a year, but $10 billion a year, <laughs> plus or minus, on developing solutions to these problems, which the world will inevitably face, right? Right, yeah. I mean, I mean you know, neglected diseases, they're neglected. That's why they're termed neglected because, you know, they don't happen in the rich countries. Yeah. And, um, and but in event, you know, with climate change and things that are happening, you know, we saw that with Zika, the virus, that things started migrating and, and um, we still don't have a treatment for Zika today, despite all the claims that companies have said that, oh, we learned from the Zika experience and now we're applying that to COVID. You see these adverts on Twitter uh, by pharma itself saying, you know, certain people at Merck are using their Zika experience and SARS experience and MERS experience to fight COVID. And I'm thinking, yeah, but we still don't have treatment for those. <laughs> but, you know, there are there are more serious problems like antibiotics, right? New antibiotics. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Which is another challenge that the market is not addressing very effectively. Yeah, because there's no long-term market. I mean, it's, as, as we say in the uh, the op-ed and as we've done in, our, in my organization's other work is if you look at the amount of effort that goes into keeping an existing product franchise going, you know, the life cycle management of it, you keep piling patents and patents and patents. You're investing in sort of the lowest effort to get the maximum gains um, in terms of, you know, keeping those monopolies longer and longer. You know, a drug like Humira, which can, you can get sort of 30, 40 years of patent on it keep your competition off by a bit of litigation for as long as possible. Eventually the competition comes on, but then you're raking in $20 billion a year. That's more of an incentive for them than really tackling some real public good, public health issues. And what would it take for the U.S. to have a public option for pharmaceuticals? I think it would be a great idea to have a, more of a public aspect of this partnership that exists between governments and uh, the private sector. I think that comes down to ideology first. Uh, you started this conversation now with the, the, what this podcast covers, you know, the neoliberal ideology is that basically the markets govern, profit is best, and that's the only way we can get, you know, progress. And I think we've seen in this instance that entire sort of theory being uh, at least heavily questioned. And then, you know, you look at all the billions that governments are now pouring in to incentivize the market to come up with the goods. If we were pouring those billions into sort of preparedness as some kind of government body, which used to happen in the US, for example, you know, back in the 40s, they used to do this. And, you know, even all the military work that's gone into, for example, remdesivir, remdesivir, a lot of that initial research was done by the military. And so the government agencies are already doing this. So it begs the question, why can't we go a bit further? And at least for pandemic preparedness and situations like this, get the basic research and get it made through to sort of some kind of almost ready end product that can at least be adapted as needed. Now, I'm not saying that the public sector is going to solve every problem either, uh, but we do need a, an alternative mechanism because we can't then just then, you know, provide all the incentives to the industry all at once. 
and throw money away. I mean, there was an announcement yesterday to uh, because there's a, you know there's a lot of nationalism that's going around in terms of drug supply. So there's this company Flow that has been given lots of money. It's an unheard of company. It's got almost potentially up to eight hundred million dollars that's going to be thrown at it. And this is like what what the government is doing, you know, the U.S. government. And I think that money could be better spent if we built these infrastructures. At the moment, the way it works is uh, everything that the public invests, whether it be through the government, it ends up in private uh, hands and they decide what they do with it. We've seen that with some of the the treatments uh, that are actually being tested and approved, like Gilead's remdesivir. All public money that went into it to drive it forward, but then it rests with Gilead's hands in terms of how it's going to be taken forward. And I think um, if we look back in history, back to after the, the, the Second World or during the Second World War, uh, when there was a real public uh, investment into real public health needs and other uh, aspects that, uh, that were in the public benefit, that, that system really did drive what was really needed in the market and private actors responded to that. Today, we've left it completely in the hands of the uh, private pharmaceutical sector. And so if you were to deliver a message to policymakers who are listening to the show, what specific things should we change going forward, maybe particularly around the patent system or transparency? What would you suggest? Well, I think, first of all, we need to know all the government dollars and the types of research that are going on and all the different types of diseases. I think at the moment, you get bits of information, but it's very hard to find what's going on, how much is going in from government funding. I think we need to also change the the sort of the, the way you can get patents in terms of what is really deemed an invention because a lot of patents that get granted are repeat knowledge but you know applied in slightly different way and so what it does it keeps locking that knowledge down in different ways and i think we need to raise the bar uh, in terms of uh, what is considered inventive to get a patent and by doing so i think we'll open up a lot more research space i think also within that what companies do when they are researching an area is and what they do is they kind of fence off a huge research area by filing overly broad patents. It's essentially like, you know, I'm going to scorch the earth and no one can come on this sort of territory. And uh, by doing so, you're preventing researchers from coming in. And so essentially you have no competition even before a product's being launched because they're just totally curtailing a whole area off. I think that's another area that we need to really look at uh, in order to free up more scientific knowledge that has been captured uh, in a privatized way. And then ultimately, I think there needs to be an investigation sort of post-COVID as to what the market didn't do coming into this and uh, what could a government sector do uh, as a way of alleviating some of that sort of that pressure that uh, we're all now feeling uh, as we rush to try and find the solution. Well, maybe it's not a 1% global tax on pharma. Maybe it's a 5% global tax on pharma and then yeah. you know recycle those dollars back into things that address the public good. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for spending the time with us. Yeah, thank you. Best of luck in your work. Go get them. No, I appreciate it. Thanks for covering in these, these issues. Cheers. Take care. Bye. So, Jessen, what did we learn from Tahir? Well, I think we really, you know, talked about why we don't have adequate vaccines or the adequate foundation for vaccine research in this moment and when we need it so much. And the bottom line is that the market model for pharmaceuticals is really lacking and that we need to reform a lot of different elements of that. Yeah, there is, to use the term charitably, a profound market failure here. 
it's just super clear that we have to find a way to either require the pharmaceutical industry to invest more in these things or to tax the pharmaceutical industry a lot more and let public institutions do that research. But to do nothing seems insane. Yeah, this moment really lays bare how high the stakes are for not yeah. getting this right and this really right. rigid adherence to neoliberal ideology right in this moment has had tragic consequences and fairly simple reforms like fixing the patent system and raising the bar on what new patents need to be be protecting right uh, are, are not rocket science these are things that we can and should do and yet preserve the creativity and innovation of the private sector. There's a way to balance this far better than we have done in the last 30 years. So this issue is actionable right now. Uh, the House Democrats just passed a $3 trillion stimulus measure, and they did not include drug pricing changes uh, for pharmaceuticals that were going to be getting public dollars and including transparency, price controls, reforms to the patent system, which they could have done, and they didn't. And so there's this moment where we need to be raising these issues and and getting some of these changes made. That's right. And voters need to let their elected representatives know that we'd like to see industry price controls for things like COVID vaccines, that, you know, that these industries do need to be more robustly regulated and, you know, just controlled. Because the truth is that, you know, at the end of the day, governments are ultimately responsible for the system that incentivizes the, the you know, the pharmaceutical industry or any industry to, to behave in a way that serves the public interest and not just a protection racket for rich people. This is a good thing to be involved in. It's a good thing to be knowledgeable about. And it's a good thing to keep your elected representatives on their toes about. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.